I want to direct your attention to a word that's found twice in verse 4 of the second chapter of Romans. The fourth verse, the word is kindness. Some translations will, will use the word goodness. Verse 4, or do you not think of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience and knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Don't think lightly of God's kindness. Why not? Now, Paul's going to lay out several reasons why we shouldn't take it lightly, and we'll talk about those in a little while. But the primary reason is that we're talking about an attribute of God, who he is, his character, his nature. Some translations use the word goodness, the, the goodness of God, but kindness is a good translation here. Kindness is a good way to explain goodness because it's, it's not goodness as opposed to badness, it's not that God is good as opposed to being bad. It's that he is good in the sense of being benevolent. The word here is crestotes, and it means good in the sense of being generous, good in the sense of being merciful, good in the sense of being kind. Its equivalent in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word hesed, which basically is translated loving kindness. Remember hesed? We studied the Kesed of God when we studied the book of Nehemiah. You remember that when Nehemiah heard of the condition of the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon and how they were in great distress, they were in reproach, and how the walls were broken down, that Nehemiah sat down and wept and mourned for days. He fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And in his distress and mourning and weeping, Nehemiah appealed in prayer to God's loving kindness, chesed. He prayed in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness, who preserves chesed for those who love him and keep his commandments. Loving kindness. A little boy was asked in Sunday school, you know, what's the difference between kindness and loving kindness? And he says, kindness is when somebody gives you a piece of bread. He says, loving kindness is when they put jam on it. We've seen the loving kindness in, in Texas last, this last week with Hurricane Harvey. Somebody has said that loving kindness is an ordinary guy in Texas with a boat. How many times did we see that loving kindness saving people, carrying mother and child out through the floodwaters? Nehemiah prayed to God to respond in loving kindness. God's loving kindness is the attribute of God that we want to focus on here. God is possessed by an innate goodwill towards sinners and innate kindness. God is by nature merciful, tender-hearted, compassionate. God withholds judgment. God grants benevolent favors because it is his nature to do so. When Moses in the Old Testament was faced with the overwhelming task of leading the people of Israel, he questioned God as to whether God would really be with him. Lord, are, are you in this with us? Because God, Moses said, if your presence does not go up with us, do not lead us up from here. Moses needed assurance, so he cried out to the Lord, show me your glory. And God responded graciously to him by saying that so, since no man can see my face and live, he would make his goodness pass before Moses. 
And God put Moses in the safety of a cleft of a rock and covered it up until he passed, and, and Moses could see his backside. But it says in Exodus 34, 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Now watch how he proclaims his attributes here. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. God extolled his glorious attributes to Moses, including that the Lord God is abounding in loving kindness. It's who he is. The Lord says to Moses, in effect, Moses, you can be assured that I'm going up with you. I abound in loving kindness. And, and therefore, God's loving kindness is a reason to praise the Lord God. It's a reason to honor him. It's a reason to worship him. The psalmist praises the Lord in the 145th Psalm, the 8th verse. He says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The 136th Psalm. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Why? For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods. Why? Say this with me. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the heavens with skill. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above all the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and the stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. We give God praise because his chesed is everlasting. Now, the word kessed, loving kindness, is found over 250 times in the Old Testament. So we're certainly not going to exhaust its meaning here. But consistently in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, you find that God was good to his people when his people were not good to him. Time after time, when the stiff-necked, rebellious people of God sinned against him, there was only one reason why God did not take them all out immediately and condemn every one of them to eternal punishment. It's because of his loving kindness. But the Lord is also clear in his warning about this. Turn over for a moment to Exodus chapter 34. The 34th chapter of Exodus, verse 5, it's on page 106 in the Bibles in the Racks. This is right after the glory of the Lord passed by Moses and God declared his glorious attributes. And then in chapter 34, God told Moses to cut out two new stone tablets and that God would write them again uh, to replace the tablets of the law that had been destroyed. And we pick up the narrative in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 34. Then after this, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses. The Lord stood with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. And then in verse 6, God passes by in front of Moses again and once again extols his glorious attributes. Verse 6, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Same thing that God proclaimed to Moses before. But this time God takes it further. Verse 7 continues, Yet 
No, verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. But now God adds a warning to those who would presume on his loving kindness and refuse to turn from their sin. The Lord who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But verse 7 continues, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You see, there's another key attribute of God extolled in Exodus chapter 34 here, and in our text in Romans chapter 2, it's the wrath of God. In his loving kindness, God forgives iniquity, he forgives transgression, he gives sin, he bestows his loving kindness, but on account of his wrath against sin, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. The key phrase for this is back in, our, in Romans chapter 1 at the 18th verse. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God is great in loving kindness, but he's also great in his wrath. He is a God of wrath. We saw this last week in chapter 1 of Romans, that God gives sinners over. He gave them over to suffer the consequences of their sin, to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to degrading passions, to a depraved mind. And, and one aspect of God's wrath is to give sinners over to their lust so that they experience the inevitable, horrible consequences of their sin. That is to say, sin itself is its own punishment, and that is God pouring out his wrath. But listen to this because it's very important. God's wrath and his loving kindness are not opposed to each other. They are two attributes of the same God. Both are the nature and character of God. They're not in opposition in any way whatsoever. They are not opposed to each other. They do not diminish or limit one another in the least nor is God's wrath tempered by his loving kindness. God's wrath does not take away from his loving kindness, nor does his loving kindness take away from his wrath. Look again at verse 4 of Romans chapter 2. Or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience. A key word here is tolerance. Now the word translated tolerance doesn't mean what the word tolerance has taken to mean today. Today tolerance is defined in the dictionary as sympathy or indulgence for beliefs or practices differing from or conflicting with one's own. Or a second definition, it's the act of allowing something that you don't agree with. We, we tolerate bad behavior. We allow it. We tolerate certain lifestyles. That, that's not what it's talking about here. The word translated tolerance in verse 4 here of Romans chapter, or verse 5, yeah, verse 4 of Romans chapter 2, or chapter, yeah, chapter 2, refers to forbearance in the sense of a delay. It means that it'll be tolerated for now or put up for with for now, but not for very long. God's tolerance is a delay from experiencing God's full wrath, but it's just a delay. It doesn't mean that the person's sin is tolerated in the sense that they get away with it, 
or there aren't any consequences, or it's acceptable in any way whatsoever, it means that God's loving kindness and patience only delays the expression of God's wrath against sin. We see that in verse 5 of Romans chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, now get this, look what happens to the wrath of God. It's the very same thing that God warned about in Exodus, that those who have a stubborn heart, an unrepentant heart, where they will not turn from their sin, verse 5 continues, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. People think they're getting away with it because they really haven't seen any consequences of their sin and they, they certainly don't attribute their problems to their sin or they don't feel like God would really judge them for that or they don't sense God's wrath upon them now or they don't feel guilty, or they presume on the grace of God. Well, well, yeah, God is God, God is good, and, and He is loving. He's certainly not going to smack me down for that. God is forgiving, right? Paul says that the expression of God's wrath, His righteous judgment, is being delayed on account of His kindness and patience. But it's only delayed. Sinners are storing up wrath for themselves, it's the same word used in Scripture for storing up treasure, treasures in heaven. The word is thesorizo, which means treasury. We get the, the word thesaurus from it, which is a treasury of words. When you've got to find a word that means something similar to something else, we look in that treasury of words. And By the way, what is another word for thesaurus? <laughs> People who do not repent of their sins, who are stubborn and rebellious, are storing up for themselves God's wrath. Storing it up storing it up, and there will come a day when they will be the recipients of the unbridled, stored up, full wrath of God and his righteous judgment against sin. Why does God delay? Second Peter chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 9, because the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So exactly who are these people who store up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God? In Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses these people directly. When he was talking in chapter 1 about the sins of the Gentile pagans and all that they did and those who willfully reject God, he referred to them as they and them. God gave them over. They were unloving, they were insolent, they were haters of God, they were disobedient to parents, and, and on and on, sin after sin, they and them. Now Paul addresses a completely different group, and he speaks to them directly. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 2, not only are the pagan Gentiles without excuse, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Picture what is happening here. Paul wrote this greatest letter ever written to all who are beloved of Rome, called of God in Rome. And the letter was hand-carried to Rome from Corinth, where Paul wrote it. The letter was hand-carried by a deaconess named Phoebe. 
Now, the church in Rome would have gathered maybe in one location or in in several homes to hear the letter read out loud to them. Maybe Phoebe read it out loud or one of the elders read it to the congregation. And when they heard the denunciation of the sins of the pagan Gentiles, that long list in chapter 1, and how God gave them over, they would be thinking, that's right. We live in Rome, the most decadent city in the world. I see these sins and these evils everywhere I look. But whether it is Phoebe reading the letter from Paul or one of the elders reading the letter, there is a marked change of tone at the beginning of chapter 2. And Paul intends this deliberately. The reader has been speaking about they and them and probably getting more than a few amens. But now it's you have no excuse. You, Paul gets everybody's attention. Therefore, you have no excuse, literally, oh man, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. The Apostle Paul knew from his own Pharisaical background that self-righteous people tend to justify themselves by blaming others. Self-righteousness is a very difficult uh, sin to get people to see and condemn in themselves. But it's a serious, damnable sin because it keeps people from seeing their own need for the gospel. It believes the lie that we can be good enough in ourselves to qualify for heaven, that, that we don't need a Savior who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Maybe really gross sinners need a Savior, but, but me? Hey, I'm basically a good person. God wouldn't judge a good guy like me, would he? Or would he? Self-righteous, even religious people are the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is calling them out directly with a diatribe against them. A diatribe where he says, oh man, it's a classic diatribe here. These people pass judgment on others and in doing so, they condemn themselves. These are people who are quick to to pass judgment on others, but they're also quick to excuse themselves. But Paul says they too, like the pagan sinful Gentiles, are without excuse. Please turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, the first verse. The seventh chapter of Matthew, verse 1, page 1196. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus is speaking to those who believe in an external morality rather than what's in the heart. They, they think it's all on the outside. It's what you do. It's what people say or people see, it's what, just what you do. And the Pharisee would say, as long as I look good on the outside, then it's okay, and, and we really look good. We're, we're not like those other guys, but Jesus says, it's what? It's what's in the heart. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Concerning adultery, which the self-righteous would take only as an external act, Jesus said, but I say to you, to everyone who looks at a woman for lust for her has already committed adultery with her, where? In his heart. Jesus recognized that the Pharisees were so proud, so self-righteous, and so convinced of their own superiority that they became completely condemning and judgmental of everybody else. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7, in contrast to the attitude of the Pharisees, Jesus told his audience, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, now people who are caught up in some kind of sin that they're trying to rationalize or some kind of false religious system often quote this passage. Now, 
They say, remember, Jesus said, do not judge, lest you be judged. We're not supposed to judge other people. They condemn others who might make any kind of negative evaluation of what they do or how they live or the kind of lifestyle they live. But when Jesus said, do not judge, he was not referring to the type of discernment that it takes to recognize sin, to recognize error, to, to recognize Satan's schemes. Sin is sin, and the Bible clearly defines what sin is. We are to judge sin. We are to judge Satan's schemes. We're not to be, we are to be aware of them. We are to judge false doctrine and point it out as such. We are to be discerning in these areas. We are to make a judgment in these. Rather, when Jesus says, do not judge, he has in mind that judgmental, critical, egotistical, condemning self-righteousness typical of the Pharisees. A simple translation of Matthew 7 verse 1 could be rendered, do not criticize. Do not criticize lest you be criticized. You see, the Greek word translated judge is krino. Now, the word can be translated in at least 15 different ways, including discernment, discern, so it depends on how it's used in context. A related noun form of krino, the verb form, the noun form is kretes, from which we get our word critic. So do not criticize is a perfectly good translation here. The question is, what does it really mean? The key to understanding what Jesus had in mind in verse 2 of Matthew chapter, is in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 7, the second verse here. Jesus says, for in the same way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Just what was the standard of measure established by the Pharisees? They had set up an impossible standard of measure that they couldn't even live up to themselves. And then they judged everybody else on their own self-styled standard. <coughs> Excuse me. They had encrusted the law of God with some 360 extra do's and some 250 extra don'ts. And each one of those had categories and subcategories that, that tried to shackle every aspect of law, hundreds, thousands of different laws. And even though they couldn't live up to it themselves, they stood on that high pretentious platform of their erroneous standard and they judged everybody else by their exacting yardstick, by their standard of measure that they couldn't even live up to themselves. This displays legalism at its best, or, or better said, we'd say legalism at its worst. You see, legalism can only stand when it tears other people down. In that sense, where it judges others. And the danger of legalism is not particularly inherent in the list, all the do's and don'ts. It's what legalists do with the list. They use the list to tear people down. They use the list to prove that others are wrong. They use the list to criticize other Christians and ministries. They use the list to prove that no one else is right except them. Jesus said that they will be judged by that same standard by which they set up and judged others and it would be measured unto them. Back to Romans chapter 2. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 where he says there judgmental hypocrisy brings judgment. Verse 2. And we knew that, know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. 
But do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, this will escape the judgment of God? Those who are legalistic and pharisaical will say that they would never commit the same sins as the Gentile pagans. Oh no, we would never be insolent, we'd never be arrogant, we'd never be boastful, we'd never be inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, we'd never be without understanding, untrustworthy, we'd never be unloving, we would never be unmerciful. And at some point in time, they're all of those things, and any one of them. And in spite of the fact that they do it in their heart and stand guilty before God just because they do it in their heart, Jesus condemns them over and over for their hypocrisy. Now I want to point out five things about self-righteous hypocrisy as it has to do with judgment. And these are not in your outline, and so you probably want to write these down, and I'll try to give them to you slow, slowly. Number one, a self-righteous hypocrite judges the sins of others while overlooking his own sins. A self-righteous hypocrite judges the sins of others while overlooking his own sins. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, right after where we read about judgment, Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, someone has defined a hypocrite as the guy who complains that there's too much sex and violence on his DVD player. <laughs> Yeah, did you get that? A self-righteous hypocrite judges the sins of others while overlooking his own sins. Secondly, a self-righteous hypocrite judges others based on selective standards and not on all of God's word. A self-righteous hypocrite judges others based on selective standards, not on all of God's word. One of the most helpful chapters for understanding the sin of self-righteousness is Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees over in Matthew chapter 23. You don't need to turn to it, but for example, the Pharisees picked out certain parts of the law and prided themselves on their obedience to those parts of the law, but they neglected the weightier parts of the law. They would go so far, they would tie their table spices, mint, cumin, and dill, and they would count out the exact number of seeds. I got ten seeds, one goes to, to my tithe. But they neglected justice, mercy, faithfulness. They invented loopholes around keeping the law. And they said that if you swore by the temple, you're not obligated to keep your word. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, you were obligated. A self-righteous hypocrite judges others based on selective standards and not on all of God's words. Thirdly, a self-righteous hypocrite is more concerned about external conformity than with true inner godliness. A self-righteous hypocrite is more concerned about external conformity than with true inner godliness. Jesus said, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In fact, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs that are full of dead men's bones. The Pharisees were, were concerned that they not defile themselves for the Passover by going into Pilate's Gentile court. At the same time, they were seeking to crucify the innocent Lord Jesus. 
Self-righteous hypocrites want to keep up outward Christian appearances. But they don't judge their own sins at the heart level. They put on happy Christian, put on a happy Christian face at church, and but they'll use abusive speech with their families and with other people at home. A self-righteous hypocrite is more concerned about external conformity than with true inner godliness. Number four, a self-righteous hypocrite is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only in gaining a following. A self-righteous hypocrite is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only in gaining a following. Jesus said to them, using the harshest of words, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and on land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They didn't care about the people or their hearts before God. They just wanted to gain a following that made them look good. A self-righteous hypocrite is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only in gaining a following. And lastly, a self-righteous hypocrite justifies himself by comparing himself with others or by blaming others for his own sins. A self-righteous hypocrite justifies himself by complaining or by comparing himself with others or by blaming others for his own sin. Jesus told the parable of the proud Pharisee who went into the temple and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. You see, the Pharisee wasn't comparing himself with God's word, which condemns pride. Rather, he was comparing himself with others who, in his mind, were worse than he was. In his mind, he kept some of the law, the tax collector didn't keep any of it. So on the curve, he's accepted by God while the tax collector is rejected, he thinks. But God doesn't grade on a curve. This brings us back to the kindness of God in verse 4 of Romans chapter 2. Why does God bestow his loving kindness? What is it intended to do? The fourth verse of Romans, or the fourth verse of Romans chapter 2. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul is saying, if you think you can get away with sin because God is kind, God is tolerant and patient, you're greatly mistaken. His kindness should lead you to repentance, not to self-righteous complacency. If you go on sinning, presuming on his grace, you're only storing up wrath for the day of judgment. God's patience is similar to his tolerance. The word translated tolerance or patience here literally means long on wrath, slow to anger. God gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent without inflicting judgment. God says that, Paul says that God just doesn't trickle out these benefits. It's the riches of his kindness. He, he gives them richly. But the problem is sinners mistakenly think because they experience God's blessing in some areas and God's judgment has not hit them yet, God must think that they're okay. 
They won't face his judgment because they really aren't such bad sinners like the pagans that the God has described in chapter 1. But Paul says, if you think that God's kindness, tolerance, and patience means that you will escape his final judgment, you're in big trouble. God is kind, tolerant, and patient so that you will repent. And finally, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath in revelation of the righteous judgment of God. An unrepentant heart stores up wrath, but God's kindness leads us to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 again. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a little bit, I want us to think hard about God's loving kindness. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, you are the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness, Hesed for those who love him and keep his commandments. Father, I pray if there's any one of us here today who have presumed on your grace, thinking we can get away with it, whatever it is. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit right now. Father, that we would be very much aware of the many ways which you have bestowed your loving kindness upon each one of us. And in that, Father, that that would bring us to repentance. Maybe we've drifted away or gotten away from you. Father, I pray that you would draw us back to you, that we would confess our sins to you knowing that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, help us to keep that in mind now as we gather at the table of the Lord and remember Jesus Christ, our Savior, what he did for each one of us on the cross, the greatest act of loving kindness in the history of the world, in the history of all eternity. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.